you're tuned in to the Neo Academy podcast. My name's Mark, and welcome to another episode of Neo Chats, deep dive conversations into the culture of education. Uh, good morning, Simon. How are you? Very good, very good. How are you, Mark? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, where are you joining us from? I'm back in my bat cave in small town Italy, uh, near Bologna, uh, for people that have an idea of Italian geography. Near Bologna, okay, a bat cave, that's an interesting phrasing, just thinking of you behind a waterfall or something. <laughs> Is it full of, full of uh, techno technological devices and gizmos? And It's actually very quaint, and, and it's where I kind of plan my missions, but uh, most of my work as a global remit, so <clears throat> it's it's um, great to have the opportunity to <clears throat> be exposed and have the freedom to travel for work, see what, what's happening around, but also come back to uh, a comfortable, cozy uh, little town in Italy. Yeah, it's it's very you got to have a, a nucleus, especially when you travel. There's got to be a place where you can shut the door and recharge and shut the world out for a little while so thanks for letting us into your back cave today um to share this so simone i mean you, you you do a lot of different stuff but i mean you're director of global ecosystem and innovation at parchment and you're a chair on various kind of groups and steering groups and things like that um in terms of sort of micro credentialing and verifiability and trust and certification of learning and, and education but more generally i mean you're very involved in the kind of web3 ed3 education space um so you can probably describe it a lot better than i do um when people ask you what you do um how do you frame it for them i try to um <clears throat> say that i'm i'm involved with education technology and food where food is probably one piece that we leave aside but that belongs to my passion but certainly <clears throat> The, the framing around ed tech would be right. Uh, I'd say it is really an, op an opportunity that I've had to give back to something that was a life-changing experience for me, the opportunity to study abroad. Turned me from a dropout, close to be a dropout, to an A student. Um, and I see it as my purpose to give back to education and, and support the development, let's say, of a, a global education ecosystem particularly um, through the lens of credentialing, which to me is not just a technology, but is an attitude that taps really into uh, a recognition mindset, uh, in a sense, stretching it, gratitude, but it's you know, recognizing um, experiences that could be meaningful for students, for people, but can also be valuable for uh, third parties whether it's employers or other uh, training institutions. And, and this has really put me at the edges um, of the organizations that I've uh, been able to contribute to. Um, I find um, a, a lot of um, excitement about being able to connect the dots. Um, and I've been trying to connect the dots through technical interoperability in a sense uh, for the majority of my uh, professional life, which is mostly been uh, involved in the higher education sector, uh, working for um, credentialing companies, digital credentialing companies like Parchment, for example, but I've also had previous experiences in working on the, say, administrative legacy system of universities, the student information systems, where data is really generated. And so originally the question was well we now have more data about you know our students about our learning that happens how can we streamline the processes that really are supporting what i like to call just freedom and it's the initially was the mobility of students at, at least in europe uh, supporting the Erasmus program, which is one of the flagship programs in the European Commission or the European area, higher education area, that would allow students to study abroad. And so with students travel information about them, money, and a whole scaffolding uh, of um, agreements uh, or smart contracts between institutions. And I felt that 
really just being able to take your information along, being able to share it was an indicator of uh, freedom and education in a sense becomes that vehicle, uh, particularly if you look at it from, from a global perspective and the ability to, to move around and to learn uh, in different contexts uh, through different um, programs or really anytime. Well, that, that's very much characterizes how, you know, the discussions that we were having about the transitions in education, you know, a lot more about it's freedom, isn't it? It's ownership, it's uh, empowerment, it's, um, you know, getting rid of all of this worrying about all the equivalencies between this and that when you cross the border and trying to validate this qualification and evidence of learning in this place and all of this stuff. And now technology has really got to that point where we've stepped up. But um, I just want to kind of zoom out a little bit because, you know, you're, you're very much on the vanguard of of change, you know, and, and things like micro-credentialing, which we'll definitely come, come back around to. Um, thinking for the, you know, your average higher education institution that's out there that maybe say if you go back to say even 2017 you still had that kind of um flurry of anxiety when the institution said we're going to introduce interactive whiteboards or we're going to use google classroom or something like that you know that that's still very much the reality in higher education institutions it was certainly accelerated hugely by the pandemic um but you still had a a great deal of institutions just the, the, the vision of technology was something like, let's take what we do in the physical classroom and replicate it on a Zoom call, a Zoom meeting or use Microsoft Teams or whatever. Um, and so technology for so many institutions and so many educators and learners, you know, in that environment has seemed like a complement. It's something to add on. It's like, the, you know, you think about it as an app or you know, a, a tool, but it seems like the, 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 the complete landscape of the way that technology and education integrate is changing really quickly. And it's at a point where even the late adopters can't really ignore it anymore. So I wondered if you could just kind of give us an indication of, you know, even just sort of bullet pointing it. Um, I know this is very reductionist, but thinking about the, the big shifts, you know, if I'm a kind of late adopter in an institution and I'm saying, well, What's this about? Why should I care? You know, things like Ed3. Um, what what really is changing that will impact the way that institutions work, the way that teaching and learning works, that I really have to pay attention to? Uh, what, what would you say to those people? I would tell them to just try to uh, feel comfortable with um, what's ahead. Um, the things are changing, but what has really changed is the rate or the speed of change and the acceleration uh, that we're living through. So even in, in just in the span of, of you know, 10 years, the first technologies that were uh, forced into the classroom, as you mentioned, you know, felt a bit foreign. And so we were not equipped to, to make the best use of those tools. And so there, there was a necessary moment of, of exploration and experimentation with these tools that probably uh, were those um, created those lessons learned, you know, the the good failures, and and clearly, you know, when you have a tool at, in hand at hand like a hammer, everything becomes a nail. So we try to lead with technology, but I think we are realizing that um, the the convergence of availability of technology the uh, shifting of the learners that we have coming, especially in higher education institutions, so non-traditional, no longer 18 to 22 years old, um, I guess global environments, uh, external forces like COVID that are additionally accelerating uh, change are kind of converging and, and putting us in a situation where that is unique. Like I feel that our generation, particularly the teachers' generations, uh, is is living through uh, the change of an era, and not the, and and I think they live through. They'll go from you know one era to another in their professional lifetime. This is also happening because of the this acceleration that that I mentioned, and it's not something that people have seen before in their professional careers. So we have to be able to cope with new tools and a set of a, a la layers of 
changes that are happening uh, at the political uh, level, the technological level, but also in practice, you know, how do we teach and learn every day? Um, and so being able to see this shift could be scary, but also a great opportunity, uh, particularly for the future generations. So I guess our generation working in, in the education sector here is going to be a, a formidable agent of change with all the strings that come attached with that, the challenges particularly. But I feel that we are living, you know, if we were looking at eras, I think we're in, a, in, a, in, a, in another uh, renaissance of learning. Yeah. And in a sense, mm -hmm. when I think about that, I'm really thinking about micro-credentials uh, and, and how they have really been able to uh, realign, I think rebalance or retune the mindset of teachers, learners, and, and institutions around, you know, what is learning? What is the role of each different uh, training institutions or, or education institutions uh, in the lifetime of citizens of a learner. And it's not no longer com com uh, compartmentalized. It's more composable. It, it, it recognizes different kinds of learning. There is no longer a bias that short online courses, you know, are not fit for academia. Uh, and, you know, uh, sometimes I joke saying that micro-credentials are MOOCs being rebranded because MOOCs initially were kind of pushed out by academia saying, well, those are, you know, low-state credentials. We would never credential that. Um, yeah. But now there are numbers of, of micro-credentialing uh, frameworks being put into place, the European Union, New Zealand's you know, leading the way, Canada, everywhere. And this is just saying, look, I mean, you are in a position to enable this, uh, the, the embrace change. And that is historically the role of institutions that have been around for centuries in some cases. And this is another one of those times. So by recognizing different kinds of learning experiences, like micro-credentials, and bringing them, connecting them back into your academic curriculum, that is where you're really removing um, barriers or tearing down walls that somehow have created a split between formal and informal education. And we've been talking about lifelong learning, and that's just another way of saying that barrier should be removed. And we should be able to capture that learning wherever it happens, whenever it happens, and stack it together so that it becomes your profile, your identity, and an identity that you can take with uh, on your life journey and be able to share or curate yeah, according to, you know, the situation or whatever you see fit. Okay, there's, there's a lot in there. And I think that um, convergence is definitely a word that stands out because and, and renaissance as well. I'm glad you use that word because it does feel like that. And you, you kind of, it's difficult to obviously judge in real time. These are often words used through the historical lens, but it very much feels like it. I, I often liken it to you know, the Gutenberg printing press is the basis of the kind of the, the, the enlightenment, the revolution, the dissemination of knowledge and taking it out of the hands of the few into the hands of the many. And technology is, has simply stepped that up again. But in terms of a lot of the things you're talking about there, it's that, it's that convergence between Web3 and Ed3. And it, it's been kind of moving that way for a while in especially in K-12 and more informal learning and more of the schools and institutions on the vanguard where you're breaking down a sense of you know that subjects clearly should not exist behind walls you shouldn't have maths in this room and English in that room because when we're solving problems we're using a range of things and if we are directing our own learning you know, we're going to need to, you know, we when we want to know something, it's generally to kind of solve a problem or because our curiosity has been sparked by something. Or I'd really like to know more about that specific thing. And we don't want to do a four year degree to find out about this little thing. Um, we want to kind of put together our own learning to build a, a mosaic or a patchwork of, of things that, that suit us and represent and align with our passions and our values. So it seems like technology is saying, well, hey, this is now, this is now possible. Uh, universities, of course, um, it's interesting you're talking about the kind of hesitation. I mean, what, what's shifting there? Because you, you mentioned, and I've experienced this too, this idea that 
it couldn't, you know, MOOCs can't possibly be real learning because they're too short, they're not regulated, there's no depth. How do we know um, that the learning is taking place? All these kinds of things. So do, do you really think that's shifting? Are our institutions really opening up to this kind of um, smaller compartmentalization of learning so that allows you to build personal learning pathways? Or is this just a few um, on the vanguard? What are you seeing out there? I am seeing it across the board in higher mm. education. At this stage, I think, particularly in the last two years, um, the, I guess, universities, both from, say, the registrar's office to the instructional designer, are, I think, starting to ask themselves the right questions. And fortunately, but also not very romantically, this is also because the, the face of the students is changing. So the, the, the offering that they had, the monolithic four years, is no longer fit and is not attracting the students that end up also becoming part of the community and the stakeholders and supporting the community, i.e. paying money. So I think there is, it's, a, it's an alignment of universities to what's happening. And across humanity, just the, the different lifestyles, this has ramification in, in um, and a lot of things, but it, the, I guess the positive side effect of that is that universities have really started to, to pay attention and are starting to look within their own walls or, or campuses or ecosystems to see where could we start from? Like, uh, what are the, say, co-curricular activities or life-changing experiences that we know occur in campus? Some of those experiences, I don't know about you, but in my life, you know, have shaped, that have shaped my life more than anything else happened, you know, in those four years, but they were not necessarily academic, but they were, they happened in that context. So universities know that they're offering more than academic training. Those are life-shaping experiences. And so, and there's so much happening that they are not being, they're not recognizing. Uh, and whether they start to recognize that for credits, or not, this is you know, kind of the debate. Like, how do we make sure that we uh, formally recognize um, different learning experiences and stack them against a curriculum? Um, and, and that's happening, you know, and certainly it's a good signal and it's no longer just a weak signal. I think it's becoming stronger and stronger. Therefore, it becomes a good predictor of where the system is going. And again, it's not just the Ivy League universities, you know, wanting to partner with private vendors and creating like short courses that are more uh, probably fit for the market needs. This is just really everyone, um, all the university, public and private. So... To, in a sense, I, a lot of the burden of, of this change um, lands on the, uh, the shoulders of the teachers. It is just, you know, the tools um, are naturally helpful, but they need to be uh, properly used. And so that took some time. But the moment you realize what kind of tricks you can play with uh, technology in terms of assisting a pedagogical model that may be more incentivizing, more gamified, uh, more emphasizing recognition, uh, social dynamics that you can create in a classroom, you know, peer-to-peer -peer learning review. Those are things that I'd say we've seen uh, develop uh, with, you know, online learning platforms more and more. Uh, and uh, we, we are seeing probably this new era of the internet, the web three, let's say as potentially an opportunity for some of these um, movements to, to come together to converge and finally go into mainstream and uh, shape the uh, kind of new trajectory for, for education. Well, I, I would like to say also that as you know, we all have, you know, hype cycles around technologies and I'm seeing in web three, what, what I think it's very interesting, at least for me, and I look at it from kind of the credentialing angle is there is, there are some novelties. I mean, the idea of ownership and being able to, I guess, be more responsible or, or have um, agency over your data 
is a thing that is enabled by technology, but honestly, that doesn't make a lot of difference to many people. Like it, most people don't even know what that really means. Like having a credential on your account, is feels like you can use it. And so they don't double click inside what are the uh, sovereign ramifications or more, uh, I guess, philosophical issues around ownership and so on. There is, that is maturing. People are becoming more aware of that. But I'm seeing validation of interesting uh, pedagogical model or approaches that you know were all already uh, present in you know across web one and web two um, that are being validated that back then were being uh, discarded or discredited. Um, one example that I like to make is um, open badges. Mm. Now, mm -hmm. open badges are if you're familiar with the Boy Scouts badges, I guess token of recognition that are now digital. And they could be issued to anyone for anything. Um, but badges is a technology that is now gone mainstream. And I like to look at it as the ancestor of modern recognition technologies. Uh, and it started in an informal education space, particularly so in the K-12 range. And you know, badges already back, uh, back, back then had this ability to attach evidence to a credential, to add criteria. The, the design of an open badge already included this idea of endorsement. And those are principles that have been underutilized between say, you know, 2012 and now, but are now incredibly uh, just, they're projecting, uh, they're becoming the future of credentialing where in web three, maybe this other signals around a credential that could be an attestation that you have completed a course. There's so much meta information around that credential, which is not captured. And this could be evidence. So imagine that you, uh, you know, complete a course for public speaking and the evidence connected to that digital credential that you received is the, the video of you presenting. Mm -hmm. Or let's say that you start to share that credential uh, in the wild online, and then you start to get feedback from people, endorsements, likes. Th that long tail, I'd say, uh, of the, the second uh, market or the second uh, layer effect of sharing credentials uh, increases these mechanisms of connection with people, with the market. So credentials go from being say collectors of skills and achievements to connectors of people. And that is where that idea of recognition really kicks in. And I'm really, really passionate about it. And I see the web three is kind of tapping into, let's call it a nano credential layer. So the reputation layer that sits under a credential that could be verified and verifiable, but it, it, it actually increases in signal strength when you have, you're able to capture uh, endorsements. These are likes, praises, upscores, upvotes. Those are all data points that are now in this Web3 world more and more abundant than ever. They are noisy, but we, because they're digital, we can append them to a credential attestation and they probably provide a better measure of performance or current performance to that particular credential, even if, if it was verifiable. In a sense, if you know people have been talking about skills as currency, I think this additional layer, substrate, adds liquidity to that currency. And I think in, in Web three, you know, the mechanisms and the, the tokenization of of learning is just really a validation of of this recognition mechanisms that, that did exist already, and that digital credentials were already able to represent. But it was probably a timing issue, and now this all is coming to fruition. I wonder if this is all, see, I mean, thinking with my head on as, um, you know, if, you know, as a sort of course designer and, you know, you know, I'm somebody that sort of, you know, I'll write courses and get them accredited by accreditation bodies and stuff like that. So I'm very well aware of the kind of hoops that you have to jump through to, to get these things considered valid at particular specific levels, which is still, you know, where traditional mainstream education sits at the moment, but what we're seeing, I mean, so if we think about some of the things you were talking about, which I would think about as part of maybe the education 2.0, 
that kind of shift towards, you know, within, still within the general confines of traditional teaching and learning, you've got this shift to peer learning, you've got different ways to evidence learning. I still remember discussions I had even seven, eight years ago with accreditation bodies about trying to get self-reflection, um, you know, a, as part of the assessment, you know, and, and the, the struggle I had to get that recognized, you know, so this is still part of that kind of education 2.0 world. Um, but now, if we think about the, there's a bit of a shift towards skills now, of course, and skills, fortunately, there's quite broad agreement on levels of skills, you know, levels of knowledge is, is different, you know, and they kind of vary all over. But when you focus on skills and you think about moving from being able, you know, Bloom's taxonomy, being able to describe and identify and summarize and then right up the up the pyramid to critical evaluation and analysis and all that kind of stuff. There's quite broad um, universal acceptance on those cognitive skills and, you know, and and uh, capacities. So do you think that's one of the things that's opening the the way to maybe a more universal recognizability, a universal framework, you know, because that's one of the big things. It's like if we're, we've got all these micro-credentials to evidence learning, but how do they connect in terms of, you know, level? How can you say that this one is suitable for this type of role, you know, as an employer, you know? So what's, what's going on at that level in terms of, um, I understand that verifiability and trust and reputation is one thing, but in terms of the actual framework for for level and intensity and depth, you know, as an employer, for example, how would you how would you know what kind of frameworks are out there? Uh, there's probably one too many frameworks, right? And I think the challenge <laughs> here is how do we make all these frameworks composable? To borrow a term popular in Web three, um, takes just skills framework. Like, there are different standard frameworks to describe a specific skill. So I certainly would agree that moving down at skills level, it's just a much better way of assessing learning, recognizing it, and just the language, the common language. Um, but even when we you know, deal with, I guess, infrastructures that support skills frameworks, um, we need them to be able to be comparable or composable. Uh, in other words, I'm saying, even uh, if, you, if you're taking whatever skills framework that you may have or qualification framework, no one is going to be the one ring the rules them all. Like you can make arguable decision and maybe practical because you need to move on and adopt a specific one. But, you know, I'm seeing more and more uh, compelling cases around being able to remix uh, competence frameworks and how you do it is a mix of, you know, having these frameworks being um, explicited or articulated in, in, in narrative. So this information should be on the web and should be published in linked data, which is a way to saying it should be machine readable so that, you know, that allows the comparability with our existing frameworks and the remixing of competence frameworks or skills frameworks so that uh, there are relationships that can be built, uh, there can be comparability, um, and you have these two layers, which, you know, one is the top down, so here is, this is the, your framework of reference, but also the bottom up emergent, um, uh, I guess, more social use of skills definitions uh, that you know may need to span across context uh, because you as an individual may have been mobile and may have studied or, or uh, had learning experiences across the skills framework. So the composability of them is important. This is also where emerging technologies like linked data, which is already mainstream, comes into play. And that's why I guess the modern uh, credentialing specifications are all based on, on linked data from open badges to verifiable credentials and so on. So there is that effect, which complements the, 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 the view of you know, accreditation bodies or uh, formal institutions that provide uh, generally um, tools to run these comparability or equivalences. So there, as in what you were saying, I recognize 
sort of the this, this overarching, uh, if you want to look at UNESCO, you know, the Global Recognition Convention, just this effort to really uh, bring or create uh, pathways or mechanisms to connect in the different qualification frameworks across the globe. And those are like narrative heavy, right? And so, and, but they do regulate, you know, whether, you know, if I come to study, like if I go to the US to study, I need to have my degree uh, recognized or evaluated by a credential evaluation agency. And that has to kind of goes up to the, uh, the Bible, the UNESCO Global Recognition Convention. But at the same time, you know, and it sometimes, and it still requires a bit of manual intervention an evaluator, you know, that has to go in and do the equivalences. So I think with technology, we solve the verifiability, so the authenticity challenge, right. okay? Yeah. And that mm -hmm. is where verifiable credentials go, but we have not solved yet the, the equivalency. That still requires brain power, which is more and more being taken on by AI. So I think we both need the structured data, linked data, right? But also the... Uh, emerging algorithms that support in this decision, you know, the recognition of qualifications to support mobility. So I'm not saying that AI is going to solve that and all, and, and the, all the credential evaluation agencies are going to uh, be disrupted, but in a sense, it's a mix of both. And that is already another one of the signals that we're living in this transition. We're crossing the chiasm. And so these new tech are coming in. And it, it, if we are in this domain right now, we need to be, um, wise in being able to take them on and understand how they are shifting even our work, which may require reskilling on, on, on the part of professionals that are in that particular position, for example, recognition professionals. Yeah, my goodness, there's, there's so much going on. I mean, it, it sounds like AI is kind of at least taking the load so that the, um, the need for manual intervention is drastically lessened. And, you know, especially you know, having worked with admissions and things in institutions, having seen that a lot of the work goes into verifiability, I mean, that's time saved immediately, you know, so we're just looking at the, 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 the end of, um, you know, the level of the qualification and equivalencies might need some manual intervention. But it seems to me that this, this is perhaps where the other as aspect you were talking about was the sort of, um, what I've heard referred to as the learning vitae, you know, this kind of very personalized learning evidence, a collection of learning evidence that you might have in your, you know, online wallet or whatever, um, that you can show to employers or further education that might actually carry more significance in some ways. No, so you've got your you've got your qualifications, you've got them verified. But I think if I was an employer or somebody accepting graduates into a master's program, for example, I'd be really interested to see this learning vita. And you mentioned one of them, for example, a public speaking credential um, and the evidence um, was the, the video of you doing it. So just for, for people who are curious about this, as I am, um, could you give us an example of what kind of things people might have in their wallets, you know, or, or whatever you're going to call it? Um, to be able to present as learning evidence? What are the, the different media available? Um, and what kind of things are you seeing out there that might actually um, lift an applicant off the page and actually give much more actionable information as to who this person is, what they can do, uh, what their values are? This is really the, the, the core of the issue. And I think if there was one message that I you know, like to, to share is that you know, we have now the, the possibility to uh, curate our own identity uh, online with uh, the support of evidence. And, and now this evidence is uh, kind of the, the limitation, if you want, is that it has to be a digital artifact. But we are now kind of collecting uh, or leaving digital traces of ourselves everywhere. Uh, a lot of our experiences could be represented um, in, uh, in digital. Even if you're, like if you're, any paper document that you're looking at today was born digital. So it, I think that is the, the availability. Uh, on, in terms of what could go into your backpack or a wallet, you know, you have, you could have a mix of, you know, formal qualifications, but also um, think about things that are meaningful to you as a person. Uh, attendance to events, 
mm -hmm. was another use case that was frowned upon, you know, back in the early days of digital credentials. Uh, and right now in, uh, for example, in Web3 is coming back with a vengeance. Um, if you have not heard of this uh, POAPS project, I mean, proof of participation, effectively these are badges that are token, that are NFTs, in fact, that are issued to people that go to conferences and, and people love to collect them and love to share them. And in fact, it proves that you may have been to every single, say, you know, Ethereum conference out there, which has a very specific weight and a strong signal for whoever is looking at you and wants to understand, you know, where you have been. And so those maybe become the long tail of your identity, but as you collect more and more, you have that agency to curate what you want to show for different purposes, whether you want to get a job or you want to uh, project yourself into, you know, through your uh, more uh, community service work. Um, really, uh, anything that you could collect in your portfolio uh, is game, whatever is meaningful to you. And, and honestly, this is really, again, not a, a primitive that Web3 introduced. Uh, portfolio thinking or folio thinking was always about being able to collect the reflections, so the meta reflections that got you to complete an assignment. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the challenge has been there. I mean, how do we make this uh, precious information consumable from someone that wants to verify so that it's not that it's easy to, um, to dissect and to parse through? But really, digital credentials need to be are, are the evidence inside a person's portfolio, which right. is the same of saying a digital wallet or a digital backpack. So I think the power that we have in our hands is that we now have this means of collecting uh, the shards of our identities. And uh, with that uh, power comes, with that great power comes great responsibility because now the burden is pushed back to the individuals. So this sovereignty or agency or ownership that we talked about comes with price, which is becoming more responsible for that information. You have no one else that is taking care of it you need to uh, understand there are different ways of um, using and sharing data about yourself. Some of this data may be private and you want to keep it that way. Some of this data you may want to leave public. And that brings about this other conversation around, you know, what goes on chain, which is publicly available for everyone and what stays off chain, which is just for you uh, to use in wherever you see fit. Thanks. It's fascinating and, and it seems to tie in with, if you look at how, I think of LinkedIn, actually, I think about as a network, if you look at how people wish to present themselves, there's very clearly a desire to say that my, you know, my job title and my previous job titles and my qualification and my previous quali qualifications are not necessarily representative of who I am. And so if you look at how, you know, on LinkedIn, you know, you've got that kind of that personal summary box, you've got your um, learning badges and certifications, some of which are sort of self-certified, you know, you've got the recommendations you've got. Now, obviously that's all been driven by um, it's bottom up, um, otherwise it wouldn't work, right? So I think, you know, what you're talking about seems to tie in with a general desire for people to say, I wanna be in control of presenting who I am, you know, and I want to be able to, to tell that story. And I don't want to be limited by what an institution narrows me into. I want to be able to say, this is me. Um, and it seems like the technology is there to actually allow us to do so. And, and importantly, it's verifiable. So it's not like um, LinkedIn, when you say you were, you know, director of X, Y, and Z and you know, maybe that wasn't quite <laughs> the case or you're, you're allowed to kind of, you know, put, amplify your role or your responsibilities. So you've got that level of verifiability um, underneath as well. It seems like, seems like the, it, it's an excellent development. It's a very positive development. Um, what's the argument against it? I mean, are, are people afraid of this? Is there a lot of resistance from employers, from institutions, or is it just a universally positive thing. So the verifiability of claims is, um, you know, one fundamental challenge that we are 
trying to address, you know, both uh, at the policy level, again, the recognition, the global recognition, but also technically, uh, we have now way more tools and, and cryptography to be able to uh, serve that use case properly. So to make sure that we, uh, you know, are able to produce verifiable credentials or pieces of information. Uh, the way this happens, you know, is changing. You know, we in in the current Web two world, we rely on uh, third parties, platforms, effectively, mm. you know, that maintain that that, that 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 do that verification for us. You know, I guess the tendency to shift is to go toward more independent verification. And this is where technologies like blockchain come, uh, come handy and you, know, you no longer need the issuing platforms in the case of credentials to be um, in operations for a third party to verify like in the future that you indeed graduated from the University of Bologna, for example. So, but the technology there is in place and as, as anything, uh, there are probably one too many solutions to the same problem. And so the interrupt challenge there is to, you know, how do we uh, make sure that we have cross-regional like global uh, interoperability at the technical level? So we, we can talk in you know, the same language, but, and very importantly is how, like when we add this additional technological layer, and to make things verifiable, how easy it is for relying party or verifiers to do this verification. Because, yeah. you know, unfortunately, I mean, there are uh, embarrassing statistics on how much credentials are being really verified, which is way less than you would expect. Just because it's expensive, it's hard. So if we introduce technology to solve the problem, so make those credentials verifiable, but on the reliant, the verifying party, it is, uh, it, it, there are sort of steps to get there. So it becomes even harder. Like we need to be sure that we have then adoption of these verifiable credentials, that the support of these credentials to, I guess, a lifelong journey or to be turned into opportunities, uh, for example, by allowing you to get a job should be frictionless as, as much as possible. And, you know, when you introduce new technology, you go through, kind of a hype cycle or learning curve that initially is, is probably clunkier than what you have right now. So the user experience, for example, in this new, you know, uh, web three world or ad three is something that we need to work on. Uh, and we need a lot more designers uh, to be able to play a role so that we add the layer of verifiability, but we maintain the experience uh, seamless and frictionless. Because ultimately, again, credentials are not the diploma, digital credentials are not the diploma, the parchment that you want to put on the wall. They need to serve a purpose. And typically these are to, you know, on the enrollment pathway. So you want to continue progressing your studies and maybe apply for a PhD or in the employability pathway when, when you want to get a job. Those are the functional one, right? And then there's the other one, which I think is a more exciting and is just being able to have a reflection of yourself that you can curate and share it with the world, you know? Um, it's probably uh, when you meet someone, you don't introduce yourself by showing, I graduated from the University of Bologna, your verified diploma, you know? Uh, just like you don't show your, uh, your wallet with your cryptocurrency. Like the wallets could really house, a, uh, uh, I guess, a wealth of information about you uh, that is more expressive. And this is really where um, NFTs are are coming uh, as like as a tsunami uh, to provide another mean for people that most people that are more familiar they live uh, online uh, additional form of expressiveness like this is the art that I like this is the event that I went to and those are verifiable. So uh, the beauty of it is that learning is part of your identity for some maybe uh, more important than others. Mm, certainly when it gets, when you think about the use of these credentials in a wallet, your academic credentials, like your degree from university, the frequency of use of that credential is low. That must be said, like how many times have you shared your diploma with a third party? 
three times, five times in a lifetime. Yeah. So the low frequency of those credentials does not really help with the adoption of it. But the higher frequency of micro-credentials, like smaller tokens, participation of events that speak to your identity and are more current, I mean, you may end up using them way more than you use your academic credential. So they carry a different value for you, a different utility across a lifetime. But they sit next to your academic credentials and they may actually augment the signal of it. In some cases, you know, your degree corresponds to what you're doing live. In others, it doesn't. And so you would not couple it together, but it's the curation that you can do in how you present yourself uh, that is key. And, and when you present yourself, this, this is the other big issue. The party that is you're sharing this with should trust that. Uh, and so in the higher education context, this is particularly controversial because we are saying that instead of relying on the accreditation bodies or the issuing organizations, the learners becomes the proxy of truth, if not the source of truth. This is a fundamental shift that it, it's practice. And, you know, we're still kind of behind, but the technology is there to support it, the verifiable credential, as we said, you know. The policies are saying that the UNESCO Global Recognition Convention says, you know, non-recognition should be the exception. So I think, but, but the change management required to really honor or trust a credential that I, an applicant, share with you, uh, MIT, that I want to uh, apply. I mean, the, the current practice is I phone to the University of Bologna and check whether that's true, or you use third-party verification agencies. So there's a fundamental shift in this sub-sovereign movement or in this idea of learner centricity or learner gravitas that require learners to be trusted as the source of truth. It seems to me that I mean, this is hugely exciting because um, there's so much letting go in here. There's so much by, by institutions. You know, you're talking about learners as the proxy of, of truth. And we've, we've seen it shifting, you know, if you think about the in a very rudimentary form to what, what might be called learner-centered approaches in everything from, you know, healthcare um, to education, you know, person-centered counseling, learner-centered learning. There, there has been that kind of shift to away from the didactic approach, um, prescriptive thinking. Um, that's certainly something I think most people have become comfortable with, and, and rightly so. Um, this is a whole different level. And what I love about it is that it seems to be broadening, because it's broadening the sense of what education is, and it's broadening the sense of how experiences have validity, educational validity, you know, so that you can, um, it's like, um, there's something in Scotland, it's been around for a few years called the Adult Achievement Awards, where they help people that um, have not really had the experience of formal education to reflect on their life experiences and actually through re reflective practice, say what they learned about themselves or what they learned about, you know, a skill or something that they maybe learned from a neighbor or taught themselves from YouTube or whatever. And they get the, the, the opportunity to express that themselves. And this is just done on paper. But then they're given uh, what's called an adult achievement award that's a regulated qualification, which to me seems fantastic because it's broadening the sense of what learning really is. And it's not just the province of, you know, academia. Um, so we're talking now about access broadening, which is very, very exciting. Um, and it seems and, and just becoming comfortable with the fact that this is all emergent. We don't have all the answers. There's a fluidity here in terms of how it's verified and measured. But there's also an acceptance that it's bottom up as well as top down. Uh, and we've just got to become comfortable and embrace the process because it seems like we are all this is the thing about a renaissance. It's uncertain. It's evolving, it's emergent. We have to be comfortable with exploring it together. I think that's gonna be difficult for some institutions. Things have been the same in, in sort of higher education for, you know, well, Bologna, I mean, it's where it all started, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, if you go back, you go back 900 years, the University of Bologna, it still looked very much similar to what you see today. The fashion's changed a little bit, but, um, you know, there was that, the instructor on the stage and uh, lecturing students is still very much like that. It's going to be difficult for institutions to sort of let go. Um, but it's a very exciting time. 
so you mentioned Bologna, of course. I'm, I'm in Bologna. Bologna is not only the, the home of you know one of the oldest universities in the world, but also the Bologna process, which was one of the main reforms that really just opened up this idea of creating a, a European higher education area, free flow of student mobility, and, and great things that came with it. I mean, obviously, it was a case of good aim, you know, probably less optimal implementation, but it, it was significant. But sometimes I reflect on you know, the role, there is this debate whether Bologna is the oldest universities in, in, in the world, right? And, and I guess it is by the measure that it was the first modern university, which is an urban campus. And the university was not you know, locked behind the academic walls, but it was the first university that really opened up the doors and was weaved into the thread of the municipality around it. So with the relationship with the institutions, with the local communities. And in that sense, I think uh, that, that to me represent how, you know, that renaissance of learning when we look at credentialing or just being able to use uh, recognition in a more expansive sense, you know, in, in a sense that can help you to create communities, you know, it, you know being interested or experienced in a specific areas, you know, through the use of technology could allow you to connect with everyone that has the same interests or expertise. And so digital credentials could help with that. Imagine that you, if you could right click on, you know, a badge or verifiable credentials and send a tweet out to everyone that has the same skill or that has studied the same university. So there is a, a, a number of use cases that are, uh, that we could imagine. And so to some extent is that, you know, uh, opening up of the university walls, the, the removing of those barriers that are that, that made Bologna the first modern university, but I also think they're coming back in this learning renaissance today that is really enabled by, by technology where recognition uh, to some extent precedes cognition. And this is a quote by um, um, Axel Honneth, which says, you know, it, it, you know, if I, if you show me that you're uh, great at public speaking, I can clap, I can give you a thumb up. And that is the power of recognizing someone, recognizing the learning of someone else. And that act of empowerment, I think creates community, uh, is, is a strong signal that would be valuable also for a third party. And now we have the tools to really capture that. And that's very meaningful. I think that was, that's unprecedented and we can fine tune the use of technology, but I guess the whole social aspect and emphasis that is happening in web three uh, and going from this idea of credentials to recognition and reputation is what uh, attracts me and kind of feels, uh, feels that, you know, make, make me and people that I work with equipped to contribute to the evolution of learning in this new ad three space, just bringing the asset that we that we've seen that we have from web one and web two, or finding immutable validation of those use cases. And so that is what really excites me about the future of education at this point. So for for, for educators, and this is just to kind of um, bring this to, uh, to to wrap up a little bit because I think we've probably reached the point where if I was um, an educator, you know, working in an institution uh, in curriculum development or planning or in teaching, for example, there's a lot of information, there's a lot of different branches to explore uh, and a lot of reflection that's necessary for, for, for professionals to think about how this might look in their institution. If we were to actually broaden out our sense of learning, what would we want to capture? How would we capture it? Knowing that the technology is there, and it, and you can you can put some trust in it. There's a lot of reflection that's necessary before um, that evolutionary step takes place, and it's quite a it's quite an exciting space. I wonder where they can go to start informing themselves. You know what what kind of resources are out there? Anything you can recommend for people in institutions that are like, I really want to start thinking about this. I want to start thinking about future proofing our institution or my learning context. Um, to allow and support learners that are coming through this new generation to truly evidence the, the broader learning journey and that broader, richer reflection of what makes a person you, what makes, you know, what you want to say to the world. So what can they, where can they go to actually um, take in more and explore more about this? So I'd say they can go place in the, and they can do stuff. If you are in an institution, if you're a teacher, um, 
play around, start issuing digital credentials. You can start with open badges. They are uh, freely available. There are platforms that allow you to play around with, with them for free. Uh, and so recognize learning that you provide uh, with these um, badges. Um, you should do the same for the academy if you, if, you, if you have not done so. So that for teachers is just a great exercise to uh, kind of design curriculum that could be more stackable and that you can represent different steps along the way with badges, but also issue them and see what students do with it, see their, their feedback. That creates community and it's that act of recognition that could be uh, that could have higher frequencies. So not just at the end of four years, but every course, every skills, you may start to badge that. So there's a practical element to just really immerse yourself in this in this idea of, um, I guess, in, in the recognition space using technology. The other is more philosophical and and maybe looking at the principles behind Ed3, which is Web3 for Education. And just in the last few months, there, there has been uh, a number of very uh, interesting and curated resources that try to connect, you know, Ed1 to Ed2 to Ed3 uh, and bring it together. And I think I've started to make sense uh, of you know, what the future has ahead for us. Mm. You know, uh, Scott David Meyer comes to mind, is, you know, a, a prolific writer now. Uh, you should follow him on Twitter. I'm happy to share some of the links with you, and then maybe we can add it to this chat. Uh, he's, you know, published like a seminal piece uh, from Web3 to Ed3. Uh, Ed3, although it was already, uh, I guess, a grassroots um, group of people that was coming together, talking about technical standards. The Internet of Education as a meme is a strong one, and I would point people to it. You know, effectively, this is a set of the, the different utilities, seven different utilities that are part of the, you know, technical infrastructure for this idea of an Internet of Education to emerge and to be uh, available. Um, and if you are already with a foot in the rabbit hole and you are hanging out in Discord channels, uh, the Ed3DAO is another uh, place to go and, 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 and learn. Um, a lot of the learning that is happening in Web3 is really learning about Web3, about the new dynamics, the new primitives, the new technologies, wallets, you know, uh, buying NFTs or, or being part of a community that comes with uh, the responsibility of having votes. You know, you, you become co-founders of initiatives. So there's a lot of learning about Web3 that provides learning experience that are being credentialed. The other aspect is, you know, if you're an educator, a K, K20 educator is another um, community uh, that is really targeting teachers and, and, and helping them figure out what is the best use of these new tools uh, for uh, more effective pedagogical approaches, including the metaverse. So there is kind of a wide spectrum that goes from credentials to immersive learning experiences. So those are like three, uh, I'd say, places uh, where to go and look. Uh, it just takes time, you know, uh, immerse yourself into it um, and, and reflect on it and share what you are seeing. A lot of the new learning is just the reflections of people that are becoming more vocal teachers and that are sharing their experiences that are putting out there the challenges and the questions. Uh, Twitter is a great social network for, you know, if you are like more into the web three space, uh, there's a lot of great content that is very uh, efficient. You know, the Twitter threads are a good way to, I guess, intake all this, this, this learning. Well, I've got some homework. Um, <laughs> so, Simon, thank you. I feel like we could um, we could talk forever, and um, there's so many different forks and angles on this, but there's so much to think about. And I I've written down the resources and the recommendations that you've given, so I'll certainly make sure that we share them. Um, universities or uh, well, higher education institutions in general that are thinking about stepping more formally into the credentialing space is that something you deal with? Should they are they able to reach out to you, or are you? in a more kind of advisory steering panel sort of capacity behind the scenes. No, absolutely. Practically, you know, that's what we do. That's, you know, uh, my day job is to really help universities embrace this new technology, understand, you know, how to make that jump or, you know, how to, where to start from, particularly, you know, if, you know I, I'd say there is 
recognition technologies that is fit to support micro-credentialing strategies. So a lot of universities are now grappling with this idea, how do I you know, make a leap into micro-credentials? That's um, what I do and I'm passionate about. So that's conversation with higher education institutions on that front are, are very welcome. Uh, if people want to know more about what's happening in the technical specifications around open standards for learning records, um, I co-chair the W3C Verifiable Credentials for Education Task Force. If you're more technically versed, that's a good, good, another angle. There is another work group within IEEE called the Integrated Learner Record uh, that also convenes around these themes of trust and education, credentialing, and then governance. So I guess it's, there's kind of a wide spectrum of things, but I'm, you know, I, I said in the beginning, this is an infinite game, uh, Mark. We can talk about this uh, indefinitely, uh, but those are a couple of, you know, practical things that I'm happy to have conversation with, uh, with people uh, if need be. I can't thank you enough. It's been an education and not only about the concepts uh, and the inspiration, but I think I've, it's the language as well. I'm noticing um, in the conversation, the language that you're using, the phrases, even simple things like using badge as a verb, um, it's it's all new, you know, uh, the language is completely changing um, around education with the integration of technology, which is fascinating to me as well. I've learned about 15, 20 new phrases from you today, so I thank you for that as well. I'm going to be stealing them all. Sure, here's, here's the last one, um, and this is a good acronym, which is WAGME, which stands for We're All Gonna Make It. It's uh, kind of a, uh, you, you'll see it everywhere now if you, if you dip your toes into Web3, but I think that's a good message that I'd like to leave you with. Uh, there's a challenge, but, you know, we're all gonna make it. Thank you, Mark, for having me. I think we are. Thank you so much, Simon. I appreciate your time, and thank you for the inspiration. Lovely. Take care now. Thank you. Bye, everyone.